0: You know those books that seem to live somewhere in your subconscious? The ones that you're not totally sure you even know the title or author of, but still pop into your brain at random times? The ones with particular scenes or descriptions that stick with you? The ones that make you want to stick your nose into the middle of an old paperback book to see if you can recapture the smell of the pages? For me, Elizabeth Winthrop's The Castle in the Attic is one of those books. I loved it as a kid, but I loved a lot of books as a kid, so I'm not quite sure why this one has taken up residence in my brain more than most others. I couldn't wait to revisit it for the podcast to see if I could figure it out. I can't say that I have a lot more clarity on that question, but I can say that it was a very special treat to come back to the castle in the attic for episode 85. This 1985 middle grade novel tells the story of a sensitive boy named William, who is broken hearted at the news that his beloved nanny, Mrs. Phillips, will be moving home to England to be with her family. Who else will help him practice his gymnastics routines and keep him company while his parents are at work? When Mrs. Phillips gives him a model castle that's been in her family for several generations, he can't just accept it as a thoughtful gift. Instead, he uses it to try to keep Mrs. Phillips from leaving. With the help of a miniaturized model knight named Sir Simon come to life, William shrinks himself and Mrs. Phillips down to the size of the castle. As you can imagine, this does not sit quite so well with his nanny, and William must go on a quest and face the evil Alistair so that he and Mrs. Phillips can go home. This is a book about learning to be independent, standing in your own power, and figuring out how you can use what's special about you for the greater good. I love all of that. Admittedly, I had some blind spots to some issues with the castle in the attic during my own reread, and over the course of the next hour, you'll hear my guest Amanda Lovelace open my eyes to some, if I'm being honest, fairly obvious language around taking a woman's power away by forcing her to take up less physical space. This book has been so close to my heart for so many years that I think I just want it so badly to be problem-free. I think you'll enjoy hearing me come to terms real-time with some of these ickier elements with the help of this week's wonderful guest. Amanda is the author of the celebrated Women Are Some Kind of Magic series. She is also the two-time winner of the Goodreads Choice Award for Best Poetry, as well as a USA Today and Publishers Weekly bestseller. When she isn't reading, writing, or drinking a much-needed cup of coffee, you can find her casting spells from her home in a very small town on the Jersey Shore. Learn more about Amanda's work at www.amandalovelace.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at LadyBookMad. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod. You can also get in on the conversation on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Social media is a great way to spread the word about the podcast, so if you're a fan, please don't hesitate to post about the episodes you love on your platform of choice. Instagram stories are a great way to go, and I love giving shoutouts to listeners there. Be sure to tag at SSRPod if you're sharing about the show so I can do just that. Maybe I sound like a broken record after all these episodes, but I will remind you one more time about just how important 5-star ratings and reviews on iTunes really are. They help the podcast become more visible to potential new listeners. And since I'm on a mission to grow our SSR family even more, those ratings and reviews mean a lot to me. As I record this, we are dangerously close to 200 ratings. Could you please, please help me get there? I promise that it only takes a few seconds, and I would really appreciate it. I also really appreciate the SSR Patreon sponsors who are listening. Each month, patrons contribute a few dollars to the production of the show in exchange for some extra special rewards, including newsletters, SSR bookmarks and stickers, book club chats, bonus episodes, and more. Get all the details about joining the Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. One more thing before we move on to our discussion about The Castle in the Attic. I want to tell you about my friends at Libro FM and give you a discount code so you can get an awesome deal on their audiobooks. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. As always, SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's libr ofm and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to get that deal. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school-era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to SSR. Thank you for having me. I'm pumped because we are talking about a book that was oh so special to me when I was a kid and I feel like it wasn't a book that was super popular, at least not among my peers at the time. It was like this book that I feel like I had a very personal connection to and there aren't that many people who have spoken about it with me since, although a few people reached out to me on Instagram when I shared a photo of it recently. So I think there's some other fans out there, but I'm so excited to finally get to return to it. It's called The Castle in the Attic. It's by Elizabeth Winthrop. And I know that this was the first time reading it for you, too. Is that right? Yeah, I had actually
1: never heard of it. But when, you know, I got the list of the proposed books that we would be talking about, I saw the title and I was immediately drawn to it. Um, I love medieval fantasy things. So I was like, you know what? Like, this will probably be perfect. I'd probably love it. And uh, thankfully, I was right. I really, really love the story. I think I would have loved it as a kid too. But yeah, I had never heard of it. I did get a few messages when I posted about it on Instagram, when I posted like a picture that I was reading it. So it does seem to have like, you know, like a little cult following. And now I'm glad that like I get to be part of that too. Yeah,
0: welcome. Welcome to the cult. I'm, the <laughs> I'm excited to have you. I have to say that when I saw the titles of your books, I may or may not have strategically included this title in <laughs> your list, being like, maybe I'll finally get to read The Castle in the Attic <laughs> because I have included it as a proposed title for several guests and I'm, I'm just happy that somebody finally accepted. So a few fast facts about the book. It was published in 1985, again written by the children's author Elizabeth Winthrop. I did a little bit of research about her. It looks like she actually worked as an editor in children's publishing for several years before she became a writer herself and she went on to publish something like 50 children's books for all ages. This book had a sequel that came out a few years later called The Battle for the Castle I'm not sure that I read that one, but I think I read this one more than once or twice. Like I said, I don't really know what my connection to this book was, but when I opened it again to prepare for this conversation, I had kind of like an immediate reaction to it. It was like this sensory thing. There's even on the first page a map of the castle, which I flagged, and that in itself I think is such like an artifact of growing up, like these paperback books that we had when we were kids that had maps of important settings or like character guides. Listeners know that I love that kind of thing, and because this book was so special. I kind of freaked out the minute I even saw the map because it took me right back to that place. And I actually have a note on page one of the book, like before I'd even really gotten into it, that says this book already makes me feel something. I was like locked in immediately. I'm not sure that there's much that could have happened to disappoint me, but I'll say ahead of time, there's not much problematic in this book, which made me feel really happy because (laughs) there have been a few books that we've read for the podcast that I was convinced could not be tarnished for me, um, but had some problems. So that was a big relief. Tell me a little bit about your first impression as you were getting into the story, as you were getting to know William and Mrs. Phillips. What were your feelings as as you got into it? And how did this book maybe compare to books that you did read as a kid like did you read similar stories when you were growing up
1: yeah I was gonna say that even though I had never read this book or anything you know there's something very familiar about even like the page texture like that really like thick coarse like cheap paper and the smell
0: (laughs) it has that smell
1: yeah, absolutely. It's like going through your school library and like picking out a book that you want to rent that week. And it definitely like again, even though I hadn't read it, it took me back to books that I had read when I was a kid, especially books where um you sort of take ordinary rooms or objects and they're magical, like Narnia, like going through the wardrobe and entering a magical land. Instead, this time it was this miniature castle instead. So, it definitely gave me like warm feelings remembering like when I was a kid, and every book I read was like the best book that I'd ever read, because you totally. had nothing to compare it to. Uh-huh. I just I loved like the adventure feeling, and I think I would have enjoyed it even more as a kid. Though now I still loved it because I read books that are for children, like uh, picture books, and I also you read like complex adult fiction. So like I just like I am a really avid reader, so I just I find a piece of enjoyment in every age category possible.
0: Well, then you're the perfect candidate for an SSR guest. <laughs> (laughs) Even happier to have you knowing that information. So, as we enter the story, we meet William, who is our main character. He's 10 years old. And right off the bat, as an adult reading this book, I, I sort of made a connection that I definitely wouldn't have made when I was a kid that there's something kind of unique about a story that is kind of like this fantasy, magical, fairy tale that centers on a little boy, or at least that was unique. When I was growing up and as listeners know because I talk about it all the time, when I look back at the books that I read as a kid, they were primarily books that were led by female main characters. And I think that's the nature of growing up in the 90s. I was always handed books that featured girls as the main character and I was I was led to those books, which is a whole conversation to be had about, <laughs> you know, gender and and gender roles and the way that kids are sort of stereotyped as readers. But when I think about the books that I read growing up, like there's this sort of like very soft quality to this story and I love that Elizabeth Winthrop who is a female author even included a main character who is a little boy like to me that feels very unusual when I think about like the other books that I read as a kid books that sort of have that soft whimsical quality often had girl main characters. So right off the bat I thought that was really different and impressive.
1: Aside from Harry Potter obviously which right. everyone read, I feel like most of the main characters I read were girls and that almost makes me think maybe that's why I'd never heard of this book because you know the main character is a little boy and I wonder sometimes like how many books I missed out on because like the adults around me figured, "Oh, you wouldn't want to read about a little boy like going on an, like little boy adventures." But the fact is that This is a universal story, so everyone should be reading this.
0: Yeah, I've read a lot of books in the last two years for the podcast that I never got the chance to read when I was growing up because my teachers and librarians wouldn't have assumed that I – would enjoy them because they have boys in them. So, it's sort of been a gift to get to experience all of these books as an adult and it has made me realize that at least at the time when I was growing up, there really was this like expectation that I would only be interested in books about girls. So, as always, I think that's food for thought, but I thought that this book sort of has an interesting set of circumstances around it and I enjoyed that a lot. It also reminded me of The Indian in the Cupboard, which I made a note we should cover on the podcast because it has some similar themes and like a similar feel although I didn't love that that book as much as this one. So listeners, be aware that that book has officially been added to my list because this one was giving me <laughs> some serious Indian in the Cupboard vibes. So we meet William. He's 10 years old. When we come upon him, he's feeling frustrated because he can't get his new gymnastics routine. And it's so relatable to any kid who's like trying to reach this new level in whatever their activity is. He can't nail his new routine because his coach has added a new move at the end. It's called an Arabian dive roll. I don't know anything about gymnastics, so I don't know what that is. But he's very frustrated and he's talking to his housekeeper nanny, Mrs. Phillips, who's been with his family for 10 years ever since he was born. And Mrs. Phillips seems to really be his like major cheerleader in all things, especially gymnastics. I almost got the feeling that Mrs. Phillips had actually been the one to push him to start gymnastics in the first place. I grew up in a place where, again, this is like a gendered thing that I can't say is positive, I grew up in a place where most of the kids who took gymnastics were girls. And so I thought it was really cool again that we have this character that's been identified as, as a kid who's probably going to be really talented at this sport. They talk a lot in the book about how he's, he's especially tiny for his class. He's the smallest boy in his class and gymnastics is sort of the only place where he feels like his frame and his size really worked to his advantage. So I like to think that Mrs. Phillips like identified that this might be something that would make him feel stronger and more confident and, and pushed him in that direction and she continues to be the one cheering him on. But Mrs. Phillips also gave me some Mary Poppins vibes. I don't know if you picked up on that at all. But throughout the book, I actually have a few notes in the margin that are like, is she real? Like, is she mythical? Because I really made those Mary Poppins connections. She seems to kind of have shown up in the family 10 years ago. It seems that she came from England where she has a brother and all of a sudden she's going to be Leaving William and his family to go back and live with her family, she's basically like, you're 10 years old now. You can take care of yourself, which is like, you know, debatable, but he's heartbroken. And it did bring me back to like that moment in Mary Poppins where Jane and Michael learn that Mary Poppins is going to leave and it's just so heartbreaking for them. And, and one of the other things that Mrs. Phillips alludes to is the fact that she feels like it's time for William's relationship with his parents to change. Um, she says something to the effect that like maybe she and William have gotten too close and it's time for him to let his parents in a little bit. What did you make of that? I thought the relationship dynamics were
1: really interesting, especially in terms of like things that not necessarily rubbed me the wrong way, but I look at differently now because I'm an adult. But the idea of like yes I know like their relationship is very complex and loving and she's almost like a grandmother figure but when you take a step back she's also basically I think like a housekeeper or a babysitter or whatever her official title is. So I thought the idea that he wanted to sort of keep her there and literally keep her small was something that like never left my head the entire time that I was reading and I wondered how it would be written today if it was written with like with our sort of like feminist values that are like running rampant today. So that was just something I could not stop thinking about the entire story. But also, I did appreciate the fact that he learned from his mistakes. And he learned that he cannot literally trap women into staying with him. Um, Which again, I think would be written a little differently if it was written today. But I think the lesson is definitely still there. Which is why I appreciate the story. If it didn't end that way, I think it would have been a
0: very different story for how I felt about it. If Mrs. Phillips had been forced to stay small forever. So basically what happens is. William is like completely upset that she's gonna leave and so at first he tries to just like keep her two most special things which I think there's a pin and then a picture which she at one point had told him like if I die make sure that they bury me with my pin and my picture so he steals them and his mom is like just so you know like I think she's probably gonna leave anyway like good try but no dice and Mrs. Phillips is like yeah you know I, I'm gonna go so I, I don't really care if I have this stuff and her big gesture to him before she leaves is to give him this castle it's this like beautiful replica of a castle that has been in her family for years. And when you really think about it, like super intense that she gave it to William. Like it's been in her family I think for four generations. I don't know that there's anything in my family that's been around for four generations. So that's so special. There's all of these like legends and rituals associated with it. He's grown up hearing her talk about it. So it's such a special gift. Um, And one of the things that she shares with him is that there's this silver knight um, and you're not supposed to quote unquote meet the silver knight with anybody else. So she like, she gives William the castle and she gives him this box with the night and is like wait until i leave to open the night so when william opens the box and sees the night the night comes to life and so there's something special about william because this has never happened before as we mentioned this castle has been in mrs Phillips' family for all of these years nobody else has ever met sir simon who is the silver knight that's what he introduces himself to william as so so then as you mentioned william is like oh i have a great idea what if I just figure out how to make Mrs. Phillips as small as Sir Simon and then she can't leave. I noted a couple of the the especially... Disconcerting quotes from William because I, I agree with you. If there's anything that didn't sit well with me about this book as an adult, it's this whole storyline because I thought it was really creepy and weird. One <laughs> line that I pulled out was, "I wish I could hold her in my hands like this." He thought, then she couldn't go away from me. Also, yeah, he that's make, really concerning. So concerning. um <laughs> He could make her small and keep her. Of course, he could with the token. Oh, this one's especially creepy. Ugh. He says, or the book says, at last he had what he had wanted all along the power to keep her with him he must not let anything change that and when I read those those lines it's actually like not really consistent with William's character because I feel like so much of what's presented to us about him is that he's so soft and so gentle and I get that kids might feel this possessiveness around adults that have taken care of them, especially because his parents are super checked out. And like Mrs. Phillips seems to have been the only person that's really nurtured him. So he he really doesn't want her to go away. But even the tone of those lines is sort of sinister in a way that I just like feel it doesn't make sense with the rest of William's character. Have you um, watched the TV show You on Netflix? I'm too scared. <laughs> Although I really love Penn Badgley. So I'm I'm just like, I'm I've been torn about it.
1: It definitely gave me those vibes, though, of course, like on a much lesser level, but The idea that a kid would think that way, it just, it reminded me of Joe from you, and it wasn't a good feeling. I'm just glad that those feelings got solved in a constructive way, and he learned the lesson that basically this woman isn't here to serve you your whole life. But yeah, it definitely gave me those um, creepy Joe vibes, and I wonder, again, how it would be written today.
0: Yeah, I I think that it would be much different, or if... I'm trying to think how I think that that part of it would have been written today. First of all, I will say that, like, I don't... There's something so sort of sweet and innocent about the fantasy aspect of this book and I don't get to read a lot of new or middle grade or YA so I'm not quite sure what the market is like. But there's a part of me that feels like you don't get this kind of like sweet simple fantasy storyline anymore because I'm sure authors feel like all of this stuff has already been done so in that way I feel like you don't get things at that caliber anymore everything has to be a little bit more complicated and more layered which you know as we get further into literary history you got to put more twists on stories so I understand that but I do wonder how this part of it would be written I mean I think that William would maybe be set up as, like, a more sinister little boy. Like, you can kind of see him being written maybe more as a brat, which he's not in this book. Like, if anything, I think he's just lonely. He definitely set up as sort of, like, the typical only child who just seems to want attention from, like, the one adult who's around. He's really good at playing by himself, but he also, like— always wants to have Mrs. Phillips, not too far away. So I feel like maybe if it were written today, he would be, I don't know, maybe like the bratty youngest child in a family. Like, I think an author might have to validate his behavior in some way by turning him into sort of a less likable character. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. That's, That's, I think, how it would be. And maybe he would pull the same thing where he wants to shrink her down to size, but... I I feel like maybe there would have to be more conversation about it. Because it does happen pretty quickly in this book. Like, he gets into his head that this might be a solution. He talks to Sir Simon and is like, hey man, like, is there a way for me to make my housekeeper small too? And Sir Simon's like, yeah, sure. Like, here's the token. We can totally make that happen. And then there's also a creepy section where Sir Simon sort of alludes to the fact that he'd really like to have a lady companion around. I didn't like that at (laughs) all. That made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because I was like, not only are you making this woman small and, as you said, kind of like keeping her subservient to you, but you're now making her... I mean, I hope not, but you're, you're putting her in a situation where she could potentially be subservient to another man.
1: Yeah, so that's just another way of, like, using her, like, emotional and now even, scary to think about it, physical labor, like, to keep her small and to keep her being useful to different people. And the fact that Sir Simon is, even though he's from basically a different time, he's an adult who's just, like, letting this happen and even being like, oh, like, how can she serve me, too? So it was just, like... Definitely added onto the creepy factor
0: of like the whole dynamic there. Well, and and we haven't even mentioned yet that there's this legend. Um, there's this little riddle that's written above the entrance to the castle that says, When the lady doth ply her needle and the lord has sworn doth test, then the squire shall cross the drawbridge and the time will be right for a quest. So Sir Simon also maybe sees the opportunity from the get-go when he first hears about Mrs. Phillips, like, oh, maybe this could be the lady. I mean, he's a little bit more direct with William about it later on when William decides that maybe he should Also, make himself small to become part of all of this. Then Sir Simon is very clear about the fact that, like, yes, I think if you also become small and join us, then we can figure out what this legend is all about and actually go on the quest. But to your point, like, I'm sure that Sir Simon is thinking, okay, like, lady, check. Lord, check. Um, now we almost have everything we need. So I feel like you're opening my eyes to an even darker element of this whole part of the story that maybe I hadn't fully unpacked when I was reading it. And so I do think that that's probably more problematic than I maybe wanted to believe it was when I was reading this as an adult. So thank you for like opening mm. my eyes to that. Because I think it's a, definitely it's a worthwhile conversation. And the good news, listeners, is that, as Amanda alluded to, William does get the chance to redeem himself at the end. He realizes actually pretty early on that what he did was wrong. And so the nice thing is that like he doesn't get away with it. And I think readers realize pretty quickly that this whole idea was cruel and stupid and silly. And he's he's accountable for it, but it doesn't make the fact that this was William's like first plan any less concerning?
1: I think there's definitely, like, I go back and read, you know, the books that I read as a kid, even books like Harry Potter and going in, it's like, I'm just expecting to have a good time or like trying to recreate that magic that I experienced when I was little and reading those books and a lot of the times I have to step back and be like, whoa, like, I didn't remember it this way. Especially with books like Harry Potter, like, there's a lot of um, deconstructing a lot of those things in those books today. Certain things, like, like the um the ones who run Gringotts, what are they considered? The goblins. People have been drawing like comparisons to the anti Semitic ways that Jewish people have been represented during the past and the present and the fact that they run a bank, it makes it even more like um cringy. So it's like and now I read those books and I keep it in mind. I understand that they were magic when I like I was younger, you know, they were magical experiences, but it is also good and I think like a good like brain exercise to sort of be able to critique the things that you love, and, like realize that they can be problematic, but they were magical to you for a reason. And to
0: sort of just like be able to have space in your brain for both of those things. Absolutely. I think that was really well said. And that's so much the purpose of this podcast. And I was just thinking about the fact that when I look back on all of the books that we've talked about for the show, I think it might be easier somehow for me to, to identify problems in books that are not built on fantasy worlds and I wonder what that's about because I've been pretty easily able to identify problems in books that I that I loved when I was growing up that are a little bit more Realistic or kind of grounded in in a reality that feels more familiar to me. I wonder if the fact that a lot of these other books are steeped in fantasy sort of clouds my judgment of it a little bit.
1: I think for sure, yeah. It's definitely more obvious when it's like modern stories that don't have any fantasy. But when it's fantasy, I think a lot of the times even the authors don't even realize these sort of like comparisons that they're drawing to real life people and real groups. I know like as an author, like right now I'm writing a fantasy short story. And I'm trying to be like extremely careful to make sure like, you know, you research everything, you make sure there's no like offensive connotations with certain things. So um, I definitely think there's a lot more knowledge now to be had. So it's like we can write hopefully better and less offensively to um, new audiences
0: Hopefully, well, I'm excited to see. I, I'm excited to like see how the con- how the fantasy genre continues to evolve because I don't know that I've heard that perspective from somebody who actually writes fantasy before. But I, you know, I, I'm sure that like people that write contemporary fiction are in some ways like the first line of defense. Where it's like, okay, you guys have to correct these issues that we're dealing with in the here and now, ASAP. But fantasy authors also need to address it and make sure that some of those same issues aren't showing up or like creeping into their fantasy worlds in ways that are perhaps harder to. identify but like just as problematic for readers. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's especially creepy and upsetting about William's plan to miniaturize Mrs. Phillips is that she's so nice to him. (laughs) Even in their goodbye like She's all about empowering him. And I guess that's sort of the irony is that even though he doesn't realize that he's disempowering her by making her small, all that she wants to do is build him up. So her farewell to him is remember, you will do well in life because of who you are inside here. And then she points to his heart a brave but gentle person. Keep your toes pointed and your body tight for the backhand springs. Believe in yourself, be your own spotter. Now give me a hug and go back into the house. So all that she really wants is for him to learn to stand on his own two feet. And I can imagine that, you know, maybe if you're somebody who's like watched this child grow up from a little baby into a 10 year old like maybe she recognizes that he's become too reliant on her and she's realizing that it's sort of best for him if she gives him some space to grow so as much as she's saying that it's about her spending time with her brother and being homesick and then also sort of creating space for his parents to step in it seems to me that she also is like making a concerted effort to empower William as part of her departure so you know, then he goes ahead and just like makes her teeny.
1: There's almost like a like almost like a feminist perspective there, where she's like, "You're becoming too reliant on me and my like my nurturing state, which is the like, sort of expected for women." And she sees that, she recognizes it, and she's completely right because what he does for the rest of the novel just goes on to prove that he was way too dependent on her.
0: Yeah, he definitely was way too dependent on her, which I I think he realizes, which is nice. It's not just something that we realize as the reader. Too often, I think that children's authors are sort of shy about letting their young characters learn real lessons. And I, I feel that William actually learns the big lesson here. So way to go, Elizabeth Winthrop. So Sir Simon and William work together to make Mrs. Phillips small and in a really cool move, Mrs. Phillips is pissed. She won't even be around William. He's going up to visit the castle. He's been helping Sir Simon out from the beginning by bringing him food and kind of checking in on him, making sure that he's okay. And obviously in in the way of any 10 year old, William's like, okay, great. Like now Mrs. Phillips is small. I can go visit with her too. And it's gonna be just like it used to be, except that she's little and she'll still give me advice and help me out and like tell me how to live my life. Um, but that's not exactly how it happens because Mrs. Phillips is Mad and Sir Simon (laughs) kind of explains the situation to William and is like, uh yeah, the only way that you're really gonna be able to fix this is to uh like join us here. And William says, She wants me to be small too. And Sir Simon tells him she wants you to know how it feels. I love that.
1: I thought like when she would get there, it would be very like um like her being like visibly upset and things like that. But what we got was someone who was angry and depressed. It was almost like a way of her taking back her power. She's like, I'm not standing for this. But also at the same time, it was like, she was so angry and depressed that she couldn't be her true self. And again, I think that's very like a, like a feminist perspective, like society or like men or boys keeping you small and you're not able to be your true self. So she had like that little act of rebellion that I was like, yeah, that, that I feel like that would totally be what I would do too.
0: I feel like don't talk to me. I'll be in this, in this like really Tiny little stable or parlor or wherever she was. We haven't gotten to talk at all about the castle itself, and I will digress for a minute because when I was reading the actual descriptions of the castle itself, both from kind of the bird's eye view when William first receives it, and then when, spoiler alert, he is also miniaturized and is inside it. It took me right back to being like seven or eight years old. That's what I remember. Like when this book comes to me at random times in my head, I'm always like, oh yeah, what was that cool book where there's this beautiful castle and there are all the details and oh, what was that book called? And it's the castle in the attic. And those descriptions have really stuck with me.
1: It was so detailed in the way that it explained like the medieval um, architecture. So even though like this is like, you know, a really like short and some might say like simple book, it definitely like puts you right there. And it's like when I was little, I used to like envision being able to live in a dollhouse or a
0: Barbie house. And it's like this... Let's me live those dreams in a way yeah totally i found one quote from a magazine called teacher link um, and it says this book can be used effectively to teach a unit on the middle ages it is a great book for teaching about the architecture of the time period with its descriptions of castles and surrounding territory the issue of how an effective ruler should govern the country as well as the rules which govern society can be taught the book also has an underlying theme of overcoming fear so this would also be good to address so worth noting that this book is used in schools around the country Um, i found that it's not only sold over a million copies at this point but yes it is used in curriculums all over the U.S. Um, And I guess, you know, it's probably a really great way to draw kids into the medieval period. I actually, like, loved learning about the medieval period when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite units in school. I remember once we got to actually go to a Renaissance fair on a field trip, which I feel now like I'm part of a very small group of people that's been to a Renaissance fair and I was, like, nine. So I I think that was also another reason that I loved The Castle in the Attic because it appealed to what I was learning about in school but also what I was loving in school. So I like that this book is used in school and, and that it gives kids a chance to learn about things like the architecture um, and just kind of like the landscape of living in that time. So the cool element of the magic year that Elizabeth Winthrop has introduced is that because William has decided to become small willingly, he's not going to lose any time. So in making the choice to join Sir Simon and Mrs. Phillips in the castle, he doesn't have to deal with any of the messiness of like, my parents are going to miss me if I become a miniature version of myself and disappear for three or four days? Or what about school? Um, Sir Simon explains that because he's making the decision to do this, uh, he's just going to be able to like kind of jump back into real time when he decides to, or when he's able to, to be full size again. Um, and so I thought that was a really smart move on the part of the author. Kind of removes a lot of like the logistics that she would have to work through otherwise. Mrs. Phillips, unfortunately, because she was made small against her will, it uh, does not have that luxury and so she will have lost all of that time. Bummer for Mrs. Phillips, because I'm sure her brother in England was expecting her. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point about the feminist perspective on Mrs. Phillips, and this is something that I've only learned about as an adult and, and as somebody who's learning more about feminism and embracing feminism over the last few years, there's so much literature about this concept of like taking up space. And that's something that I did not know about when I was a kid when I read this book. Um, and I think. As you and I are having this conversation, I'm becoming more and more sad about the fact that, like, without knowing it, William who I think really is a good kid, is like taking away her right to take up space. Like literally, he's taking away her right to take up yeah. space. Because they're tiny. I mean, the way that Sir Simon was was sort of like explaining the perspective even of, of William being able to walk from one place to another once he becomes small, when, when they're figuring out the mechanics of William being shrunken down, Sir Simon is like very specific about where it needs to happen because he's like, I know it seems to you like if you become small in this certain place, it's going to be really easy. For you to walk to the castle, but actually, once you're as small as I am, it's going to take you forever to, to actually like take that many steps. So, I liked that we got a real sense of the perspective there. Um, and it also gives you an appreciation for the amount of like her own personal space that's been taken away from Mrs. Phillips.
1: Yeah, not even just her space, but by making her small and putting her in the castle, he takes away her whole life. She can only ever talk to those two people, basically. So, She gets to, I guess, like serve them only in a way. And um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. But the fact that time would pass for her and it would sort of be taken away from her also says something uh, like along those same lines and that there are consequences for sort of messing with someone's free will.
0: Yeah, I'm really seeing like some of the the, some of the blindness that I had to this book. And I'm learning a lot from our conversation. Honestly, this is like this is really interesting and opening my eyes to some things that I missed, so thank you. So one of the reasons that William decides that he's going to become small is, you know, A, because he he feels like crap and he wants to try to make this up to Mrs. Phillips, but also because there's no way for him to free Mrs. Phillips from her new tiny size, but to go on this quest with Sir Simon, who talks a little bit about this story of how he became small, um, he was not small in his kingdom, when he was in his own world, um, his father who was the king kind of like mistakenly trusted this wizard named Alistair when he was dying. And um, that was really creepy. I mean, I won't get into the details too much, but like this whole story that Sir Simon tells about how the king like lets Alistair into their home and the rest of the family is resistant and kind of like picks up on the fact that Alistair can't be trusted, but the king is sure that it's okay. And Alistair is like, kind of seems to be feeding him something that's only making him worse day in and day out, and then he gets better for a little while, and then he takes a turn again. It reminded me, had some, like, Munchausen vibes, maybe. Or yes, like,
1: yes, exactly.
0: I yeah. was thinking, have you seen this show, The Politician on Netflix? I haven't, no. Okay, well, very good. It's a really good show, but that's, you know, sort of parallel there to, like, there's a grandmother who's um, slowly poisoning her granddaughter and um, telling her and everybody around her that she has leukemia or some other form of childhood cancer. And um, that's sort of what I was feeling about the story that Sir Simon tells about his dad. And because of that, Alistair was able to take control of the entire kingdom um, because when the king was, like, at his weakest, he convinced him to hand the kingdom over to him. That was some sort of variation on that. And it was very creepy. Uh, I thought that was really Like Game of Thrones, (laughs) yeah. So, I'm so embarrassed to admit that I don't watch Game of Thrones or read Game of Thrones, which I know is so shameful. Um, from what I know of Game of Thrones, it seems very games of Game of Thrones, yeah.
1: Very like brutal, very medieval. That would (laughs) that storyline would fit like perfectly in there,
0: yeah. It really creeps me out, even as an adult, it kind of gave me the heebie jeebies. I had a bad vibe on Alistair. From that, and not even in the way of like a normal Disney villain. I was like, this guy is like, he's really messed up. Like, I, I, he's more than a cartoon to me because of Mm. that story. So I was glad that Elizabeth Winthrop shared all of that. Um, But he has these tokens, and he used one of the tokens to make Sir Simon small. um, And the token that is going to make them big again is still with Alistair. And that sort of reminded me of Alice in Wonderland that whole idea of like, drink this, eat this, be small, (laughs) be big, be whatever, be, you know, go down the looking glass, go through the rabbit hole, all those things. So lots of parallels to be drawn with other stories, which is always fun. And once William decides to become small, uh, it's time for them to start training um, because they're going on a quest. I will say something that I really appreciated about this book was that we didn't have like chapters and chapters and chapters of William training to be a knight that
1: would have bored me. Oh my god, yeah. I remember, like, not to keep bringing up Harry Potter, but even today I still skip the Quidditch scenes, because it's just, like, I'm not a sports person in general, so that stuff is just, like, I just kind of, like, zone out when I'm reading it, so that was something I was very grateful for.
0: Yeah, I thought the pacing in this book in general was really good. Like, I had enough of everything. There was nothing that I was, like, you know, we could have saved a couple pages on this. I just feel like Elizabeth Winthrop kind of, like, knew what readers were going to be into knew what readers weren't going to be into and sort of like played to that really well so I appreciated that a lot especially because a lot of the fantasy books that I've read for the podcast I think that you you know the authors can really get bogged down in logistics of these like training scenes or like apprentice scenes so I liked that a lot Um, but the other cool thing was that Sir Simon is doing the night training but Mrs. Phillips also has a role to play um, in kind of explaining that like there are other things that William's going to be to do to play a role in the quest. So I pulled out a couple of quotes from her. Um, don't worry, guys, they've pretty much made up. Uh he admits that he's wrong. So I'll say that first. He says, I know I made a mistake. Um, I have to go back with Sir Simon and find the other half of the token that's going to set us free. So he's really trying to be accountable to Mrs. Phillips. Sir Simon says, No matter what else happens, my boy, nothing shall erase this. You are a courageous person, a squire with the heart and soul of a knight. So William's pretty much back in everybody's good graces. Good job, William. Um, And Mrs. Phillips is once again helping him because she just can't help herself. She's primarily helping him brush up on his gymnastics. So she says things like, you will never be able to defeat the wizard with brute strength. Let Sir Simon challenge him openly if he wants to. You will have to depend on your brain, your footwork, and the sense of space you have developed as a gymnast. I don't know which of those weapons you will need to use, but all of them must be sharpened just as Sir Simon sharpens his own dagger. Another one, and whatever happens, you must remember one thing, that you have the weapons you need the heart and soul of a knight in the body of a squire. No other weapon will ever serve you as well as that knowledge. So I thought it was really cool that like we're getting these very explicit statements about the fact that like William's sort of existing traits and tendencies and abilities are going to give him strength that maybe Sir Simon himself doesn't have um, and that he might be able to contribute to this journey in this quest in his own way because i think that the generally what this book does really well is like i like the depiction of masculinity for the most part um i like that william is like a different kind of boy hero or at least a different kind of boy hero than what we were reading in the 90s and the fact that that he has these, like, kind of different takes on strength and confidence and power, um, and that he already has those within him, is really special and sets this book apart, I I think.
1: Yeah, I really appreciated how they showed him as, like, getting over his fears and becoming strong. But at the same time, you have a depiction of a little boy that I don't think I ever grew up with, which was, like, doing gymnastics and things, and no one— made comments about that or like said anything like stereotypical or mean about it. I really just appreciated the sort of like contrast about having it all like, yes, you can be a gymnast boy and yes, you can like basically help save the world. Which, yeah, I really don't get enough. I don't think we even get enough of that today.
0: No, I think, you know, I think we're moving in that direction. Luckily, that's definitely For sure. like sort of the the pressure that kid authors and creators in general are rightfully feeling to sort of broaden the depictions of masculinity that are acceptable and welcomed by readers and viewers and, and consumers of all pop culture and media. But I feel like this book was sort of like a leader in that, right? And William is definitely like mm-hmm. a different kind of boy than, than kids were reading about when I was growing up. So that was neat. And I thought that his dad also. played into that like yes his dad is disengaged and we don't get that much from him but when we have moments with his dad they're really positive and he's very affirming of the kind of kid that William is he's not trying to get him to be somebody that he's not I think all too often in books in the 90s especially or even in the early aughts, it's like we get these boy characters that are maybe you know a little bit out of the norm in terms of what was expected by society of like a boy Um, and maybe you would have a dad or some other character trying to change him or push him and that wasn't part of the conversation in this book at all. There was really no tension whatsoever about what it meant for William to like be a boy or like be masculine. Nobody was pushing him to be somebody he wasn't. There was even a scene where his dad gives him chopsticks and a wok as as an early birthday present because now that Mrs. Phillips is leaving the parents are actually gonna have to cook for William. They're not going to have a housekeeper anymore. And William says, most fathers give their sons footballs. And Dad says, well, I'm not most fathers and you're not most sons. (laughs) It's a wok, a special pan for stir-frying Chinese food. We can pick out the recipes the night before and I'll buy the food on the way home from the office. And it would have been so easy for Elizabeth Winthrop to be like, you know what? like Maybe he should just give him a football and like we'll create that tension. But it was so unnecessary because... Pretty much everybody around William is embracing him for who he is, including Sir Simon. Like, there's not even any pressure from Sir Simon to toughen up. Again, it would have been all too easy for Elizabeth Winthrop to be like, okay, Mrs. Phillips is going to affirm him and make him feel like he already has all the tools, and Sir Simon is going to try to, like, make him realize that he has to be more aggressive or more of a fighter, and there was none of that, which I thought was really neat. I think, like, I can't even imagine how
1: affirming that is, especially for little boys reading this book, to not feel... Pressured by any of like the older male characters to sort of conform to their idea of masculinity, which is like like it was even inspiring to me. So I can't imagine how it is to grow up with this kind of book and to sort of have that affirm that you could be whoever
0: you want to be and still save the world. And William really does get to be the leader in this quest. Mm -hmm. Um, after he and Sir Simon set off, of course, Missus Phillips is home like. Stitching something which I didn't love. It's like there she is with her needlework. Uh, come on, mm. she deserves <laughs> more than that. <laughs> even even with my rose-colored glasses about this book, in the moment, I was like, ugh, let her do something else. Um, so Sir Simon and William set off. The one thing that I was, like, raising my eyebrows about, I was like, oh, so there's this whole other world now outside the castle? Like, how did they get here? I thought they were just in the attic. And, of course, that's me being an adult and, like, having a little bit of trouble suspending disbelief. But I was like, but where did this whole world come from? I'm so confused. Like, it didn't seem like they had to do anything special to get to the world. It's like, all of a sudden, they were in the forest. That
1: definitely is something that I was a little confused on I was like, wait, are we like back in the regular world? What was happening? Um, I could definitely understand how when I was younger, I'd probably be like, oh, yeah, of course. They just walked out back instead of out front.
0: Like if you if you go out the other door, you'll be in the rest of the world. It's just all the other doors bring you to the attic.
1: Yeah, I definitely think there should have been a little bit of clarification, but then I sort of have to step back and be like, this wasn't written for me. So um, I do see how like kids would just be like, oh, that's no problem.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, welcome to my world of stepping back and being like, Ali, this wasn't (laughs) written for you. But I agree with you. It would have been so easy to just be like, Sir Simon knocked three times on the floorboard next to the stable and then they were in the new world. Like something like that, I think, would have gone a long way toward it just making a little bit more sense. But anyway, there walking through the forest and Sir Simon is like William you're going to be distracted by apparitions but don't fall prey to them like let's stay focused on our destination and we're going to the castle and just like don't be fooled um and of course Sir Simon is one that that's fooled he's fooled by an apparition of his horse moonlight and he like follows it and all of a sudden William's alone But to his credit, he gets through the forest all by himself. He is his own hero, which I really appreciate. Um, And again, like he's kind of doing it his own way. He's playing his recorder, he's doing cartwheels, he's figuring out how to self soothe, which is, I think, a huge deal um, and something that I'm still working on. But like when he gets stressed out, he pulls out his recorder and like that helps him calm down. He's figuring out ways to like make this work for him and he's like making this his story, which I think is like one of my favorite parts about it. Like he's sort of the star of it um, in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect.
1: And it definitely proved that, you know, he was alone and he could make it so. He could also make it without Mrs. Phillips. I mean, I don't think I'd recommend a was he ten years old, <laughs> thinking that he's going to brave it for the rest of his life. But it does prove that he has some sort of independence, and he shouldn't be scared of the world without Mrs. Phillips because he's perfectly capable. Uh, again, like of things like finding like soothing ways to calm down and pass time. Um,
0: he can do this. At first, I thought the lesson was going to be something about how like he would have to learn to rely on his own imagination without Mrs. Phillips and how that would be okay. Like earlier in the book, I was like, okay, The author's trying to show that, like, you know, without Mrs. Phillips to sort of guide his play and be his friend, he's going to have access to these fantasy worlds, like the one he's going to create for himself in the castle, and he's going to be just fine. But like you said, the lesson actually ends up being that it's not really about retreating to a fantasy world. It's just kind of like standing in your own power, no matter where you are, and figuring out how to, like, fend for yourself. Yeah, for sure. So there was something that I was a little bit... Confused by it first. Well, maybe "confused" is the wrong word, but I was I was very surprised by um, the thing with the apple. So, as William is making it through the forest, he comes upon this old man who's at the foot of a tree. And he's like, can you climb to the tree and get me that particular apple? To which I'm like, okay, well we all know what happens with apples in fantasy books. It's usually not good. Uh, Has anybody ever seen Snow White? Then William starts climbing and it gets even weirder because the man is like, okay, don't look down. That's the only rule. Like if you look down, everything's fucked anyway. So he keeps climbing, keeps climbing, keeps climbing. And it's clear to me that like obviously there's something funky going on with the tree because we didn't get the sense that this was like a very tall tree, but William is climbing forever. um, But he can't look at the ground because then something bad's going to happen so he gets the apple and I was like oh no like this old man is actually Alistair in disguise and like he's on to him this is a big trick and it, it was not a trick he got the apple he returned the apple to the man and the man suddenly became young and we find out that he had been turned into an old man by Alistair and I, I will say that I did not like the fact that like that spell implies that there's like some inherent problem with being old like why is that a spell that like oh it's I'm gonna make you old that that's not really it shouldn't be presented as this scary negative thing I think that sort of like breeds in kids like a fear of older people which I'll say I had like I did not grow up (laughs) feeling very comfortable around the elderly (laughs) and I wonder if it's because in fantasy books like this and in movies It's like, oh, you know, sometimes people get these spells put on them and then they become really old and that's terrible.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a bit of ageism there, which I'm not sure the author like meant to do or anything I agree I mean not
0: just like but, a trope that she played into so
1: Yeah I agree like when I remember being little and being scared of old people and I think um subconsciously and I didn't realize it then it is like the fear of the adventure ending and dying and dying is not something that kids can really wrap their heads around at a certain age so I understand like the fear of that I just wish, you know, it could have been handled a little bit differently, especially in this book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'm being nitpicky, but I I did have a reaction to that while I was reading it in real time. But this man, whose name is Dick, is so grateful to William for getting him the apple that he's like, I'm going to tell you how to defeat the dragon that you're going to find at the castle because William is like, I'm going to go to the castle. I'm going to defeat Alistair. And in addition to Dick, he had met another person on his way. There was a young boy that he met. Prior to the whole Apple incident. Um, and to sort of sum up his experience with these people, everybody's like, You're stupid. Don't go to the castle. Like, don't do this. You can't do this. Um, and again, to your point about him having confidence, he's like, Okay, oh, it's fine. I'm going to go. Great. Thanks for the tip. I'm just going to keep going. I have it under control. Um, and obviously, it's very helpful to him that Dick knows how to defeat the dragon. And he also gives William a very important little tip, which is that Alistair is looking for what he calls a fool to hire. And I guess that's sort of like, Another word for a joker or a jester, mm-hmm. um, and so William decides that he's going to go and pretend that he's like applying to be the fool, and that's perfect for him because, as we know, he knows how to do gymnastics, and he mm-hmm. can play the recorder, and so yes, here we have all of his special skills coming into play for him to you know really like present himself just the way that Alistair wants. So he goes to the castle, he defeats the dragon. That was a pretty dark scene, actually. So the way that mm-hmm. Dick instructs William to defeat the dragon. is by, like, staring in the dragon's eyes no matter what happens. And he's like, you're going to see some scary stuff, but as long as you don't break eye contact, you're going to defeat him. He's going to, like, shut down and you'll be able to get inside the castle. And he sees, like, everything he loves bursting into flames in the dragon's eyes, including Mrs. Phillips. Like, the author describes it as Mrs. Phillips sitting and a little spark, like, jumping out of the fire and catching her clothes on fire. It was so upsetting even to think about as the reader.
1: Yeah, for sure. And again, it goes back to the idea that you know, he did eventually defeat the dragon, and the fact that he was able to see all of that and still go on and be, like, the hero of the story, the prince who saves everyone and himself, um, is really empowering for little boys and empowering to read even now as an adult. I don't know how I would react today if I saw that. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty graphic. Like, this is his most important
0: person in life. He has to watch her burst into flames, which is so scary, but again, he pulls out his recorder, and he, like, figures out how to push through the fear. He gets into the castle. Um, I know I'm going quickly through all of this but this is sort of the final stretch of the plot and and it, it sort of goes on the way you might think it would. He gets into the castle, he presents himself as a fool to Alistair. He gets all of the other knights to like pretend that he didn't actually defeat the dragon so that Alistair isn't suspicious of him or his motives. Um, And he, like, hangs around with Alistair for a little bit. He, like, does some cartwheels. He plays the recorder. Um, He kind of tries to, like, get a lay of the land in terms of what he's going to have to do to defeat him. Um, And we do find out that Alistair has captured Sir Simon, um, as well as the young boy that William had met on his way from the forest to the castle, because Alistair actually thought that that boy was the one who, like, fulfilled the legend that was in the the castle in the attic. So Alistair's like, great, like, I'm good. I got Sir Simon, I got the little boy. Nobody's gonna defeat me now. Um, but obviously, William does defeat him. Um, and he does it in, like... I think, a really William sort of way. He he gets the token, but there's also this mirror element to this final battle, and that reminded me of the Mirror of Erised from yes, Harry Potter, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. I wonder if maybe J.K. Rowling was influenced at all by that, because it feels very like reminiscent of that. The mirror shows you like what's really inside you, and when Alistair turns the mirror on William, trying to destroy him, William is not destroyed by it. William is sort of comfortable with who he is. The book says, It no longer scared him. It showed him only what he already knew. With every forward stride that William made, the wizard retreated until he was trapped in a corner of the room, his eyes wide, his mouth open, and waiting for a scream that never came. William reached out and snatched the mirror, turning it on Alistair. So William, like, can't be defeated by this sort of act of coming face-to-face with himself. He's already been through all of this turmoil and all of these internal battles. um, And it's Alistair who's really going to be brought to his knees by this mirror... But William doesn't want to torture Alistair. Calendar, who is this nurse um, who raised Sir Simon, really wants to destroy Alistair using the mirror. But William's like, I don't want to do that. There has to be a better way for us to bring him down. So in the end, Sir Simon gets to come back to life. They turn Alistair into lead, miniaturize him. They get the token back so that everybody can go back to normal size. Who wants to go back to normal size. And it's pretty much happily ever after sir simon tells william your weapons were stronger than mine and so again we have like william's special gifts being put on display and being put on a pedestal even more than this knight's training um so i really liked the way it ended what did you think
1: I really thought it was interesting, the sort of like um, contrast between William as well as Alistair, because we have William, who was trying to keep Mrs. Phillips small, and then we have Alistair, who has Calendar, and it sort of shows like what he could have been if he didn't recognize his mistake and try to fix it. Um, This person who can't even look in the mirror, because he sees how evil and corrupt he
0: is. Yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't drawn that parallel, but that's true. It's like, if William had continued to sort of get drunk on that power that he got from making Mrs. Phillips small, he could have turned into some equivalent of Alistair, even in the magical world or in the real world. And luckily, he was able to put himself on a better path toward being more respectful and recognizing his mistakes. Uh, But I think that's a really good point. Alistair is like the worst case scenario. And uh, William is hailed as a hero. They basically are like, you can be our leader, but predictably, he wants to go home. And so he sort of hands the kingdom back to Sir Simon, and he and Mrs. Phillips are able to just go back to home, wherever home might be. I actually don't even know where they live or even like exactly what the time period was. I was curious about that, not that it matters, but I was like, is it supposed to be 80s or maybe a little bit before? In spite of William's efforts, Mrs. Phillips is gonna go home. They've been through all of this. He luckily has realized his mistakes. He has saved the day. He's figured out how to restore not only her height, but her faith in him, which is the most important thing. And I think he feels like he has learned a lot and like he has made it up to her, which is important. Um, And we get this scene as he's saying goodbye to her for real this time, where she says... No spotting, that's all I ever was, your spotter, because she's asked him to do his gymnastics routine one last time. She wants to see the gymnastics routine that he used to defeat Alistair um, back when they were having their quest, because of course it was that gymnastics routine that was giving him all the trouble in the real world that he used to, to take Alistair out and really like accelerate the process of grabbing the token and and bringing out the mirror and all the things that ultimately brought to his real demise. And you can just imagine him coming back to Mrs. Phillips and being like, yeah, and then I did the routine, and then I did the handspring, and then I did the dive roll. And so she's like, great, show me. And she reminds him like, okay, I was just your spotter. Look, you did it all on your own. And so I think that it restores her to a place of power to some extent. I I guess it still kind of gives us air that like she was subservient to him and like there to support him. So I don't know, maybe there was a better way for her to have a send-off but at least she's able to show him that like he doesn't really need her and it's time for him to like figure him his own stuff out I
1: also wonder about how she was so willing to forgive someone who did that like I don't know if I could forgive though like
0: even though he was 10 (laughs) I think I would still hold a little bit of a grudge (laughs) no exceptions made for 10 year olds (laughs) um so yeah that's how the book comes to an end and as much as like you know you and I have collectively identified some problems you've really opened my eyes as i mentioned to some things that i wasn't seeing when i read it for this conversation i will say that overall i feel like this is like a really it's a positive book and i, I think that in the end it's very affirming of all of the characters and their differences and, and even of their mistakes and of the ways in which they've figured out how to redeem those mistakes um i think it, it comes at all the characters from a place of like acceptance which is which is nice and uh unusual and and there's no I mean, other than than this weird thing between Mrs. Phillips and William, like you don't get this like bullying between kids. You don't get this tension with parents. There's not a lot of like judgment of people's character. So in that way, I I thought that the book was lovely and, and positive, which was refreshing.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those classic like good versus evil stories that we loved when we were younger, where things are just like simple and I wish it was that simple in real life to tell the good guys and the bad guys but you know as a book for kids I think it's just like the perfect read in terms of that. Would you recommend it to any kids in your life? Oh yeah for sure and then when they got older we definitely have some talk about the feminist uh, perspectives that you could explore but as for like kids I think this is a Perfect read. Like, I feel like I want to give this to my nephew, especially in terms of the positive representation of masculinity.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and I know that you didn't read it as, as a kid, so we can't really compare your experience reading it as an adult to your experience reading it as a kid. So I will say that for my part, I really feel like the book held up. And while the conversation that you and I are having about the feminist, sort of the underlying problems with, with feminism in this book, I feel like having that conversation just enriches the book. It doesn't upset me about the book. And I don't know if yeah. that's just because I love the book so much, or, uh, <laughs> or what. But I, I feel like it just kind of opens a healthy conversation in a way that like just makes it an even better reading experience. So for me, it really held up. I hope that listeners who haven't read the book uh, pick it up. It's a really easy read. Um, if you have kids in your life, it's a great one to pass on. I'm sure it would be a great read aloud. So highly recommend. Amanda, other than The Castle in the Attic, it sounds like you're such an avid reader. What have mm-hmm. you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: I'm actually, I'm going to look at my reading app <laughs> so that I can tell you what I've read recently. I've actually read a lot recently. It's one of my um, my 2020 sort of resolution to read more. Um, I did recently reread a YA graphic novel that came out recently called Mooncakes. It is a super diverse, super like fun, sort of like supernatural story with witches and werewolves. Again, really diverse. We have a lot of queer characters and things like that. And it was just like one of my favorite reads recently. Um, I also read The Truth Pixie by Matt Haig. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but it is sort of like a, I guess it would be like a more of a little kid's book, sort of like a little fairy, uh, a fairy tale about a pixie who has no choice but to tell the truth. It's sort of a curse on her. And it was just like a really, really fun read. Um, I've been reading a lot of um uh, children's literature recently, and those were some of my favorites, as well as Snow and Rose, which was another middle grade book. It is a retelling of the original tale of uh, Snow White and Rose Red. That was really fun with
0: beautiful illustrations, too. Well, I'll include links to all of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to The Castle in the Attic. I will, of course, also include links to all of your work, Amanda. I know you have a new book coming out in just a few weeks when this episode drops. It's called Break Your Glass Slippers. I understand that it's the first installment in a new series called You Are Your Own Fairy Tale, which is a companion to your other series, Women Are Some Kind of Magic.
1: Yes. that's right yeah it's sort of the first series when we're some kind of magic is more about me and my experience in the world especially as a woman who has had to endure things like child abuse and sexual abuse whereas this new series is sort of my modern take on very specific, like the first one is about Cinderella, like certain characters from our favorite fairy tales and how they would navigate today's world, especially given how much more aware we are and how we have more like feminist values and things like that. So that's the sort of direction I'm taking this specific series. in. of course, there are my a few of my own experiences in those books. Um, It's sort of more about like the,
0: I guess, female experience with specific characters that we all recognize love well i love the titles in the women are some kind of magic series the mermaid's voice returns in this one the princess saves herself in this one the witch doesn't burn in this one i love them i have to check them out myself and like i said i'll include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode so that our listeners can also pick up a copy amanda thank you so much for joining us on this episode and for reading the castle in the attic it was a fun walk down memory lane
1: oh no, thank you for having me it was a really really fun read and really got me thinking great well
0: thank you bye bye